rent-seeking in certain other subcultures is a technical term for trying to extract value as a middleman without adding any value. You know, economists will use this term rent-seeking behaviors. And what this means is that the real estate community, they don't even know that this term rent-seeking is used in certain subcultures to describe being a parasite. That's a culture war that they have not fought and therefore lost. This is just one example of how a subculture has to sort of participate in art, participate in cultural dialogue, participate in stories in order to defend itself. If your viewpoint doesn't make it into fiction, it doesn't get considered. And then people start calling you Renzi. One of the great joys of my life has been building Fort Capital, something that I have loved for a long time. One of the best parts about it is building it with our incredibly talented team across three offices, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston, and our team abroad. We've built an incredible enterprise focused around a mission of being the best real estate operator in the world. We really believe the better that we get at operating, the better that we get at investing. We've built some incredible technology that gives us the ability to see data that others can't and operate our company as efficiently as possible and deliver better customer service to our tenants and really everybody involved. If you want to know more about our thesis, I encourage you to go to our website, fortcapitallp.com where we talk about why we've been investing in Class B industrial real estate since 2016, hyper-focused on it. You can learn how you can help us find deals, more about our technology and, and how we think about it. You can see job openings. Highly encourage you to check out our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn. And you can do all of this by going to fortcapitallp.com. I read some notes that said you might be in your third or fourth career can you explain uh, what your career has been or the multiple careers that you've had to date? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've done a bunch of my stuff throughout my life, but the, the most recent one was that I was a software engineer for about two decades before I retired and started writing science fiction novels. And that's the big project now. I just put out my first one November 11th, and it seems to be taking off. And it's garnered some attention on Twitter, along with some of the other things that I've done and said. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're here today, I think, a little more to talk about some of the philosophy and economics than the novel. But I think my agent will murder me if I don't hold it up occasionally. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes. Okay, good, good. But you are correct. You really captivated me on some tweets that I saw you put out on Twitter. I think it started with the Emmett Shear tweet. But when we had our pre-call, there was a line that you brought up multiple times. And I said, I think this is where we're going to start it. And you said, culture is upstream of law and law affects us. Yeah. Let's yeah. start there. Yeah. Well, a, a lot of portions of the different subcultures of this country have 
for the past several decades, chosen to sort of absent themselves from the cultural dialogue. And, you know, it's like, okay, we're conservatives. We don't care about art. We don't care about fiction. We don't care about movies. All of that is for fruity Hollywood types. We're too busy welding pieces of metal together and making sure the country keeps running. And sort of the problem with that attitude from a conservative or a libertarian standpoint is that, as I said, culture is upstream of law. Things like art and fiction and film and all of these things, they have an influence over people, how people see the world. Because the real function of art, especially fiction and stories, is to show you the world from somebody else's point of view. Well, if you absent yourself from that conversation, if you don't produce your own fiction, if you don't promote fiction that is written from your worldview and with your values, then your children will grow up reading somebody else's account of the world. And moreover, the cultural dialogue will move in ways that you are not seeing because you're not part of that conversation and in ways that that don't necessarily consider your needs because again you're not expressing your views you're not getting yourself into these kinds of of dialogues and you're not spreading narratives that tell people how you see the world okay and is this something that has like spans the test of time it's kind of always going back and forth like this somebody's always controlling the narrative yeah well if you think about it, it, it if you think about it this way you know when we developed language you know when we sat around the campfire chipping pieces of flint into spearheads we told each other stories and Stories were our way of explaining the universe and talking about what was important to us. Now, you know, back then it was this sort of mythology of trying to explain why there are stars in the sky and so forth. But always the stories that a culture generates are about what it considers important and about how it asks and answers questions about the world around it. So now we've got this situation where we have a whole bunch of people sort of involved in this national dialogue. And a lot of the time it's been on platforms which are owned by certain subcultures and they want to sort of filter the discourse. And the response of mainstream America to that has been, oh, well, we, okay, we, we give up. I guess we're just going to stop watching movies and, you know, continue living our lives. And, you know, gosh, why are, why are our kids all growing up so different and rejecting our culture? You know, what's going on? Well, you, you didn't tell them stories. Okay. And why is it right now that it feels like there is 
a group of folks that maybe have been silent for a while, all of a sudden starting to wake up and kind of challenge a lot of the stories and narrative that's going on? Mm -hmm. Well, I think they're seeing what's happening with their children. And I think they're seeing what's happening with their children through the medium of public schools, of, of government schools, because government schools are another source of these kind of narratives. And again, this is another this is another venue that sort of conservative middle America has sort of largely abandoned. Like, we're not going to involve ourselves in that. That's not us at all. And so you have this curious sort of situation where there's a, where there's a majority culture, you know, the, the traditional culture of America, you know, mostly conservatives, mostly Christians, but, you know, some libertarians and other types thrown in there. And they're getting all their art, they're getting all their stories, they're getting all their entertainment, and they're leaving the education of their children to members of an entirely different culture. And I think people are starting to notice some of the effects of this. And as some of the online censorship is is loosening up now that the Supreme Court has said, well, you're you're no longer allowed to get on the phone with these social media companies and tell them to censor something. We're starting to see more discussion of, hey, these things they're teaching our kids are absolutely crazy. And hey, I used to read science fiction all the time, but. I stopped 15 years ago because it feels like everything I pick up is is a hate letter to anybody who looks, sounds, or thinks like me. And I think we've started, we've, we've thrown this term culture war around for a long time, but it really hasn't been a war because one side hasn't really been fighting. And if you want to look at it as a cultural discussion, rather than a war, which is what I prefer, because people debating and arguing is part of the natural process. You know, I think people have really sort of absented themselves from the debate. And a, a classic example of this is I was watching Steven Crowder's show on YouTube. I think uh, there was an episode I was interested in. I think he was talking to Kyle Rittenhouse or something, but don't quote me on that because I don't remember exactly. And Stephen himself said the silliest thing. I had heard an adult human being say in a long time. He said, I'm not really interested in fiction. That's for kids. You know, something to that effect. And then he puts on this sort of cartoon voice and tell me a story, daddy. <laughs> and I just stared at the screen in disbelief, like you guys deserve to lose the culture war because you're stupid. <laughs> you know, it's the the answer to this this question the answer of the to the question of what's going wrong here is entirely contained 
in the very derision he used to mock this concept of fiction and art. Tell me a story, Daddy. Well, if you're not making up stories to tell your children, who is? You know, if you're not the source of the stories, then you're not Daddy in the sense of you're not where they get their values from. And this affects adults as well. So you can sit here and posture like you're some kind of hard ass who has neither the time nor the cargo space for anything, uh, you know, that's frivolous, like entertainment and culture and art. But that stuff is going to affect you because it's going to change how people think and how people think changes how the government thinks because it changes not only how people vote, it changes what is part of the social dialogue that law responds to because law a lot of the time doesn't change society. It reflects change in society. It's, you know, we all believe this, so now we're going to pass a law. The law is following the culture. And if you don't participate in this discussion that controls the culture, that, that directs people's imaginations to imagining certain futures and not others, then you're not at the table when the future is being planned. And the version that gets planned doesn't include you. Was there a period of time, and, and maybe you know this, or it was a, an era or a decade, when did the right decide to leave center stage and not participate in the discussion of culture and art and all the things that you're mentioning? I mean, when we talked earlier, you kind of said there was a decision that the right was no longer going to participate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's a number of factors there because, first of all, the, the 20th century was very much the century of totalitarianism. And as usual, you know, what really shapes human society is technology. So this was kind of because it was the, the major communications technologies of the 20th century were one to many communications, first radio and then television. So conservatives owned some television and liberals owned some television and everything was this sort of top-down media communication. You know, even fiction was a little bit like this because you had publishers and stuff, although in that realm, people weren't really too interested in controlling the dialogue. They were just looking for good stories. But the news was always very biased. And then we had the internet come along. And the internet was this sort of major force for empowering individuals because it was a many-to-many -many communications platforms and people, people could talk to each other. And it very, the internet was very much affected 
by the the character and the subculture of people who got on it and it was these nerds and hacker types and moreover it was young people it was young people because the boomers weren't interested you know the boomers weren't interested in anything that was invented after they were 30. so i think you had an initial effect where the majority on the internet didn't reflect the majority of the country and then you had people with certain cultural values were the ones who were starting these internet companies were the ones who were creating the platforms and then they sort of succumbed to the temptation to use their ownerships of the platforms to control the dialogue and instead of any sort of concerted effort to fight back, conservatives just kind of said, oh, well, okay, you know, the, the internet is for you guys. We're just gonna, you know, we're just gonna take our toys and pout and go home. <laughs> and then if you get back to where we are today, where a lot of progressives have owned every kind of media channel out there, at least that's how it appears to date, basically every narrative that's not there is seen as right of right then. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So yeah. everything that's spoken, if it's not the very far left then by nature, it's right. So I guess my question then is it appears like the right woke up and said, okay, we probably need to get back into this dialogue. How, whether it's right, left, or I really don't care, but how will they get back in the dialogue? What has to happen for this well, to change? Well, first of all, they have to wise up, you know, because right now the the quality of the cultural discourse out there from the right has been really very, very poor because it's been characterized by one of two things. You know, either you have people who make a very good living complaining about Hollywood and the media. You know, you can, and, and you get, you get your, you know, your, your sort of right wing pundit types like the aforementioned Crowder, where he's going to get on YouTube or whatever, and he's going to talk a lot, a lot, a lot about this sort of outrage porn. Like, look what the left is doing now. And, you know, look what Netflix is doing to every show they readapt. And it's all, complaining about what the left is doing it's all reactive it's all this sort of they're talking about what the left is doing they're not putting their own message out there and you know it's it's so it's easier to make money cursing the darkness than it is to make money lighting a candle for these people and then the other thing they do is that if you ask the right, you know, what its culture is, they start talking about religion. So when, when somebody on the right gets, gets their stuff together enough to say, okay, we're going to make a movie, they decide, okay, you know, we think that the, the first 997 movies 
we made about Jesus really sort of just primed the pump. And what we really need to do is, you know, have that 998th movie about God. And that's really gonna, gonna tip the scales and convince <laughs> people. And it's not because your religion is only one small part of your culture. The reason that a lot of these people are pretending that religion is all of their culture and we have to proselytize our religion more is their virtue signal. They're effectively saying, I am more religious than you guys while we all lose the culture war. Because if you want to, if you want to convince somebody of something, if you want to sell somebody something, it has to address a problem that they are conscious of having. So you can't come at people and say, you are full of sin and Jesus is going to save you. Now, you know, I understand that this is a basic part of the Christian worldview and that it, it's pretty important to a lot of Christian people. And, you know, I don't want to argue with that worldview because there's something to be said for that. But you have to understand how that sounds to somebody who doesn't already agree with you. What it sounds like is, you know, most people don't go around every day saying, well, gee, I, I feel terrible about all this burden of sin that I have. And gosh, I wish somebody could, you know, find me a solution to this problem. So when you come along and say, you are sinful and Jesus is the answer, it, came, it sounds like you're coming along and you're handing them a problem. And then you're saying, and here's the solution that you can have if you come to church with us. It feels like kind of a shakedown. And there are so many other things about the traditional culture and even about religious culture that that people could be sharing and people could be leading with, you know, because it's like, who, who really converts to Christianity a lot? Well, you know, whores, drug addicts, and convicts, because these are the people who are walking around feeling like sin is a real problem that they have. But if you look at the other things, this, that religion and this kind of, family-based lifestyle offer, you know, really the problem that people are having in the modern world is a feeling of isolation and disconnection. So the right is leading by talking about Jesus and not leading by talking about communities and not leading by talking about values that help you live a healthy and happy life. You know, all of these these problems that we're conscious of having in society, you know, conservative pundits are very good at tracing them back to liberal ideology, but they're not talking about the alternatives. They're not talking about, here's how you can be healthy again. Here's how you can be happy again. Here's how you can be hopeful again. Here's how you can not walk around with this sense that you're living in a society in decline where, you know, all your science fiction novels are you know, 
post-apocalyptic wastelands. <laughs> He's like something out of Mad Max. Well, you actually touched on that. You said that science fiction for a long time was talking about the future. It was going to be great. There was going to be flying cars. It was going to be the greatest thing ever. And then there was this dystopian, you know, we took a left turn and then it became the world was ending. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that affects how people think. I mean, you may not have as many people reading science fiction as you have reading, you know, romances or whatever. But do you think that Elon Musk grew up reading Gone Girl? No, he did not. He, he grew up reading The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And so these kinds of stories really impact the people who do have who do have the kind of imagination that's required to say, I'm going to go build something that's going to change the world. At a certain point, we just, you know, we started, when we started seeding these, these mechanisms of culture for, you know, when we're talking about science fiction, it was sort of the Manhattan-based publishing industry where you had you know, Tom Doherty and all these people who were basically, they ran publishing houses, but their real function was they were talent scouts. And then, you know, they died or aged out. And so you had all these kind of MBA types taking over and they were Manhattanites and they had Manhattanite values. And all of a sudden, now all the the fiction you're reading the science fiction you're reading is deconstructionist, is dystopian, is, you know, not really in a sense science fiction at all because your galactic empires are just sort of backdrops for people having discussions about pronouns over tea. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and then there's a lot of this sort of, you know, dystopian and post-apocalyptic kind of stuff. and. I think because I grew up as a child reading, you know, the, the classic science fiction of the 70s, 80s, 50s, 60s, this sort of thing. You know, when you're reading Larry Niven's Ringworld or, you know, you're reading The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, it takes for granted this idea that humanity is going to go on and build better things. and for those of us who grew up reading this, we accepted that as the baseline. But, you know, I'm 50 years old. And when I talk to people who are 20 years old, they grew up reading a very different kind of story. And their imagination of the future is, you know, what horrible collapse will happen next. And you know, should I be stockpiling rice or rifle ammunition or both? Yeah, the the globe's going to end. It's a global warming. Yeah, yeah. If you notice a lot of this, these fictions, it's always, you know, a lot of this, these movies, it always starts with, you know, series of global disasters, you know, climate change, wars, water shortages, hand wave, mumble. And it gets through that in about five minutes so that they can get on with the story. And it's not even really clear what's supposed to have destroyed the world. 
we're just going to destroy civilization so that we can write a story that takes place in a destroyed civilization. And that's kind of what they seem to find very interesting. You know, you, you don't have this, this expression of hopefulness and excitement. It's all about disaster avoidance and disaster mitigation. And I think we're poised at a pivotal period in history where we have two very different views of the world that two very different types of people find compelling. You know, you, on one hand, we have people who are saying, oh, there's too many of us. We're destroying the planet. We need to scale back our population. We need to stop building technology. We want humanity to reach this steady state where we're in balance and in equilibrium with the earth and we can subsist as a population of maybe 500 million people or whatever scattered across the globe, you know, putting up solar panels and composting and whatnot. And we'll just sort of subsist like this at a steady level of technology until the sun burns out and we all die. And then there's this other vision of the world which says, okay, we're privatizing the space industry. We're building disposable, you know, we're building reusable rocket boosters instead of the old disposable ones. We're looking to increase our boost to orbit capacity 10, 100, 1,000 fold. We're going to go, we're going to run around wearing t-shirts that say Occupy Mars. We're keen to go out and inhabit the solar system and confront the challenges that come with that because, you know, it's, it's not sort of built for us to be in it. And, you know, we're going to mine asteroids and we're going to, you know, redirect comets for water and we're going to build all of these things and we're going to spread out into the universe. We're going to grow because the universe is a big place. We're going to grow into it and we're going to become more powerful as we become more technological and we're going to change our world and we're going to change ourselves and we're going to continue the trajectory of western civilization because we think western civilization is a good thing and let's do more of that so anyway these are the two views and it's kind of up to us who wins well, you, you had a quote on your website. You said the era of whining is over and humanity is going places again. So would you say that the, the ball is currently in the we're going to Mars camp? Well, I would say that that's where that's what I'm behind and pushing. Yep. Because human beings survive by being clever and figuring stuff out and We've always, we've always succeeded by inventing and growing and changing. And we're, we're confronted with some people now who they, they put on this sort of air of responsibility 
And they talk about, you know, being responsible stewards of the earth. But what this really means is that they're anti-growth and they're anti-change and they're anti-progress and they're anti-invention and they're anti-technology. They're just against all the things that have made the human race successful to this date. My favorite climate activists have beach houses and G650 uh, <laughs> planes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you notice you notice that the the people who embrace this message, you know, it's it's not really about them making a personal sacrifice because of this vision they have of the future. It's it's you know this sort of classic fallacy that that a lot of your leftist narratives are based on it's you know there's a there's a fixed amount of stuff and they'll typically phrase this by saying the world is only so big there are only so many natural resources the environment can only support so many of us there's this fixed amount of stuff and the big question of civilization is how we divide it up and the the alternate view the view that uh, that i am talking about in fiction and talking about in my commentary is that stuff is what you make and you know we used to be running around africa with nothing but a rock a few sticks and some grass and then we built civilization and that's a change in the amount of stuff you know this is like <laughs> we built something and now we have more stuff and life is better so we don't we're not people of this worldview are not primarily concerned you know whether you want to call them you know progress oriented or technocrats or libertarians or whatever you want to call us you know we're not really concerned as much with how do we divide up the stuff as how do we produce a superabundance of stuff? How do we continue the arc of civilization improving life into the future? This is a perfect pivot point in the conversation. So I want to go to what, at least to me, was kind of your most famous tweet series which came about around property rights. And you basically started by saying, without them, we literally wouldn't have civilization. And that totally caught me off guard. So let's start at the beginning. What are property rights? Who invented them? And why would civilization not exist if we didn't have them? Okay, so some people think, okay, rights are things we get from God, and that's a religious view. And other people think rights are just natural and inherent. And I look at, I look at the world and say, well, rights are something that we made up. You know, we just kind of looked at the universe and decided, well, people have rights and these are what they are. And the thing about that is that we didn't invent them arbitrarily. We invented them because we need them. We invented them because we can't have civilization any other way. The reason we have civilization, the reason we have technology, the reason we're able to have this conversation is that people 
take things that are just kind of lying around in the natural world and they put in work to improve them, to transform them, to make them into something. In other words, they invest. And when they invest, they expect to control the results of their investment. If they're not going to be able to do that, if someone is just going to come, some thug is just going to come along and take away the rock that you chipped into a spearhead, then you're not going to do that again. Because you've wasted your effort and why would you put in effort to something that, that's not going to benefit you? So we need, in order to have civilization, we need a reason for people to invest in things. We need a reason for people to make efforts. We need a reason to care. And so we invented property rights. And, you know, when I say we, this process started like very early in the evolutionary process, you know, this was before you had humans, because if you think animals don't understand property rights, you know, go thump on a beehive for a while <laughs> and see what happens to you. <laughs> so this is, this is very deeply rooted in our evolution, but it's a, it's a sort of a social technology that's absolutely necessary to have a civilization at all. And and the argument that day was basically one that was basically a communist argument was let's give it all back to the government. We'll have one owner and they'll distribute it. Well, fairly to somebody somebody said we should have a 100 percent inheritance tax. And, you know, the the interim CEO of OpenAI, one Emmett Shear, came along and said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to argue for that because, you know, I was born into this family that had investments. And so I had seed money to start my company when I was young. And it would be really great if everyone could have that opportunity. So he's sort of spitballing this idea that makes him sound very fair. But what he's doing in the background is creating these plans for here's how we're going to move all the little human beings like you around like chess pieces. And then when you get mad, we're going to say, you know, what's wrong? We're trying to help you. And so <laughs> I kind of went off on this and, you know, because this is, this is the destruction of civilization itself. This is, People, people don't build things anymore because everybody, because it's just going to get taken away from them, you know? And then later he sort of walked it back to, okay, let's have a 50% inheritance tax as if that makes a difference because then, you know, 50% of tax on an asset forces a sale. So it's the same thing. You lose your property and it's like all the transmitted knowledge all of the multi-generational family businesses, all of the accumulated expertise, instead of getting handed from generation to generation, it now all flows to the almighty government and you get back 
some portion of it distributed evenly, you know, the bits that don't stick to the government's fingers like they tend to do. And then this just gets dispensed as cash to people when they come of age. And I think he may have done some back of the envelope calculations that I didn't check and came up with this idea like we're going to give everybody $60,000 when they're 20 years old and then they can all go out and be entrepreneurs and start businesses and you know nobody's going to be a plumber and fix the pipes or anything which apparently is is sort of his idea of what a prosperous society looks like and what what really sort of enraged me was this just this very casual idea of here's how we're going to arrange society because i'm smart and you know i have an idea and i'm going to centrally plan it all and gosh why are you getting so angry i was only trying to help my motivation is that I respect people of the lower classes and I think you're just as smart and you just need better opportunities. Well, dude, if you respected us, you would listen to us. <laughs> you know, instead of coming up with these plans for how to, you know, how to pass laws to rearrange us, you'd be saying, hey, you know, what do you guys need? You know, what is life like for you? Because, you know, nobody, nobody who spent three generations or seven generations running a family farm or a little store somewhere is going to say, come and take it away from us and give our kids the money. <laughs> so this ties back to where we started, that culture and stories kind of take over the narrative. And so you said something on the call and I was like, well, how do you fight this? And you said something about like public humiliation or something to where you have to punch back. Oh yeah. Well, that was, that was the big thing with, with Emmett Cheer is, is that he very quickly blocked me and sort of <laughs> took a massive step back from Twitter. I don't think he actually deleted his account, but, uh, it was it was obvious that this was emotionally hurtful to him. And, you know, as a human being, you don't necessarily want to go around being emotionally hurtful to people. But when they suggest horrific, totalitarian, nightmarish ideas, there needs to be some pushback. There needs to be some created sense of, wow, that is a horrible idea. And do you realize you accidentally said that out loud? You should be embarrassed <laughs> because, you know, and, and the reason that this resonated with so many people and I went from a thousand to 20,000 followers literally overnight was that I was articulating a sort of a resentment that people had felt for a long time is that they were, they were looking at people who had accumulated a lot of political and social capital and listening to the ideas that came out of their mouths and realizing that these people are kind of dumb. <laughs> like, like the, the, the depth of complexity of their ideas is, well, let's just take a bunch of money from some people and give it to a bunch of other people 
And that's not going to have any second or third order effects because, you know, society isn't complicated. You know, we can just, the economy isn't complicated. We can just arrange it how we want because we're smart. And, you know, gosh, I built a video game streaming website and I sold it to Amazon for a hundred million dollars. So I must be a genius. Well, bro, human civilization is a little more complicated than a video game streaming website. So maybe the experience of building that was good and it taught you something about websites and something about running a business, but it didn't teach you to how to be king of human civilization. <laughs> you know, you have to push back against these people who think that they're the best and the brightest and they've got a plan for everybody. Because even if it were true, even if they were smarter and they're not, they're just meaner and greedier, even if they were smarter, it's not smart that has a enabled human beings to thrive and conquer the planet and, you know, produce this glorious future that we live in. It's possession of relevant knowledge. You know, yeah, you learn by being smart, but smart isn't the goal. Smart doesn't help you. What helps you is what you know. You know, and, and you know, it doesn't matter how smart you are if you don't have the proper knowledge appropriate to the situation you're in. I mean, if I take you and I give you a knife and, you know, drive you and drop you off in the woods at night, how long before you can send me an email? <laughs> There's an awful lot of domain knowledge that these people not only don't have, they don't consider it important. They think that they want to arrange society around this sort of central ivory tower filled with super smart people who are going to make all the best plans. And I think sort of the best way to describe this is uh, Dwight Eisenhower, general and later president, once said that farming looks very easy indeed if your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the nearest cornfield. Okay, then let's take this. Some of the people you've been talking about are leading the transition to artificial intelligence, which we could argue is the biggest technological breakthrough maybe of our lifetime besides the internet, or at least my lifetime. Hmm. Well, it's it. I wouldn't say that, but it's significant. Okay, why wouldn't you say that? Because, well, I was a software engineer for... Uh, couple of decades and I did some AI stuff among other things and these large language models are very interesting and they're very compelling but they are not anything close to an artificial human being or a super intelligence they just kind of mimic the way we process language and if you talk to chat gpt4 for a while and you really discuss things with it, it very quickly becomes apparent that there's not all that much going on upstairs. So it can superficially look like a human, but I think we still have a long way to go. But we're, we're getting off your original topic a little bit. You're saying, okay, these are people who, you know, are being put in charge of the AI effort. And 
they they have this sort of elitist attitude and they're not clearly not as smart as they think they are the the real motivation behind this push for what's called ai safety which basically seems to mean we're not going to allow ai to say anything that would be remotely shocking or that we would consider wrong think and we don't want to have any open source ai you know all of the ai capabilities we're going to provide to you we're going to provide to you as apis where you're accessing our computer and we're going to keep the central data set for ourselves and i think that's kind of the real motivation there it's if we control it we can protect you from ai doing anything bad because of course we are the good and smart elite people and you are a bunch of restroom bacteria who would just use it to you know make viruses or racist jokes or whatever okay so open ai isn't so open then no no it's completely not open it's it's you know the the bullshit is, <laughs> the bullshit is right there in the name from you know <laughs> word one <laughs> because it's it's not open source it's not open anything we have no not only is their code not transparent their way of running the the company isn't even transparent you know we had Emmett Shear was brought in to briefly replace some other guy who was being ousted and this this story was being passed all around the internet and no one outside the company had any idea why this was happening because the only explanation that was out there was this sort of word salad of bland corporate pr speak and you know only now we're kind of beginning to connect the dots and it seems that some kind of diversity hire got her nose out of joint because you know this this sort of technical nerd guy was rude to her and you know here you are having this sort of high school melodrama feud over one of the important segments of the future of human civilization should we be worried about that yeah yeah and the way we should be worried about that is we should not be content to say okay well open ai is providing us with something pretty good let's all use that we should be getting behind the open source community to say hey here's some money large language models are understood in in, in the literature let's build one that's open source so people can run it on their own computers and figure out for themselves what wonderful things they're going to produce with that and isn't that an option i mean couldn't we just say yeah, everybody stop using OpenAI, use this other thing instead. It's not like anybody's forced to use OpenAI. Well, if you're an individual sort of uh, user, 
you you don't necessarily have a lot of choice because you can't wish products into existence. But the danger I'm talking about here is not legal, but cultural. The danger I'm talking about isn't, you know, oh, people aren't legally able to make their own AI, you know, although they're going to try that. You watch, they're going to try that. The danger is culturally just accepting, oh, these big closed source AI models are just fine for us. We're not going to look for something else. And, you know, whenever you have new technology that is being developed first behind closed doors, you have this, this kind of risk that the control stays there forever. You know, when, when software was first becoming prevalent, you know, people came up with this thing, well, we'll just write an end user license agreement and we'll make it 60 pages long so we know perfectly well that people are just going to click accept. And then, you know, we're going to spy on them and we're going to violate their rights as consumers and we're going to do all this stuff and it'll stand up in court because, of course, it's just like a contract, right? And because people just kind of either nodded and accepted that or said, oh, well, you know, they're a big corporation. What can we do? It took many decades before these kinds of things made it to court. And, you know, the the court started saying, no, you can't just write down anything you want and call it the law. (laughs) There's, There's an implicit sales contract. You're not allowed to do certain things. But that's, again, the law is downstream of culture. So what's important, I think, with AI in particular and with other technologies in general is not just passively accepting this idea that elites have a right to control them. We should be outraged that we can't program a, a large language model AI to make a racist joke. Because this idea that somebody else has the right to control you is far worse than all of history's racism put together. It's far more damaging. You know, I don't care if AI is racist or not. I care if it is controlled by a few people who think they have the right to rule or if it is controlled by whoever tinkers with software and finds something interesting to do with it. So is there a large language model out there right now that's better than most, or is it still too early to to make that call? It's really still too early to tell. You know, a lot of of these don't really, it's, we don't really fully understand, I think, what we have here. Because for a long time, I think the general public thought that speaking and listening were very, very sort of core functions of the human being, and they were closely connected to sentience. And when you had something that could 
be asked a question and respond in an appropriate way, then you would basically have a software human being. And that turned out not to be the case. It turned out that, you know, hey, if you just throw a large enough neural net and enough data at the problem, you can build something that sounds fairly glib and can sort of stay on topic. But it's only when you probe at it a little more and you really ask it some prying questions that you start to realize that it has no awareness of itself. It has no awareness of anybody else. It doesn't know the difference between truth and a lie. And it really doesn't have the ability to to form a thesis and support it with ideas. It's just sort of generating the next token. And so this is something that happens a lot in AI. This is somebody figures out how to use heuristic techniques to do something computers couldn't do before, like play chess or play Go or play StarCraft or whatever. And they say, ah, we're about to, you know, we're about to create artificial general intelligence because these tasks are so complicated. Surely we must be close. And the real truth is that what we're finding out is that the way human, the certain things that human beings do are not actually as sophisticated as we thought. And as artificial intelligence starts to become more prevalent, these, these large language models, these art models, these sort of self-organizing map neural nets start to become more prevalent, I think one disturbing thing we're going to find is that a certain percentage of the human population is not really all that sentient either. And, you know, what we do about that is a very open question because then it's it's like, you know, what do you, well, how does this impact the economy? What do you do about employment? And, you know, this is this is a lot of the AI safety argument as well as, as we go, we want to, we want to prevent this from changing anything. Well, that's not how technology works. <laughs> do you think it's going to have as big of an impact on us as like you would listen to in the, the public? And, and if it is, is it in ways that maybe the common person isn't thinking about? I think that really it's, it's almost impossible. And I, I say this as a science fiction writer, it's almost impossible to, to anticipate how almost any technology will impact civilization. And I'm reminded of this set of funny quotes that I saw, you know, when people were first creating steam trains and they were saying, you know, surely these will never go faster than 20 miles an hour because then all the air would be sucked out of the cabin and uh, the passengers would suffocate. So, you know, no, no faster than 20 miles an hour, but gosh, 20 miles an hour is an amazing speed. And great things will be produced. So I think we tend to underestimate the impact 
But I think we also tend to estimate the impacts of certain things in solely negative ways because people tend to tend to think about the disruption of existing structure because existing structure is something they can see. They can't see what that existing structure will be replaced with. They can't, they can't see the things that aren't there yet. They can only see the things that will be taken away. And as it relates back to science fiction and AI and all these things, I mean, you could have traced AI back to maybe like movies in the 80s and 90s, probably even before that, or all the technology that we're kind of experiencing today was can be tied back to science fiction m- movies or, or books from decades ago. So do today's engineers and, and our best brains just go take from these books and go, I know that was fiction then, but we're going to make it happen? Or are these technologies emerging at the time that they're written and it just takes decades before they actually come out? Because it seems like all these science fiction books actually do predict the future, even though they're written decades uh, in the past. Both. I think the prophecy is partially a prophecy and partially a self-fulfilling prophecy because the the real social function of science fiction is to allow us to think about the future and have discussions about the implications of technology before the technology actually exists. We have all these competing visions of the future and writing fiction in that realm gives us an opportunity to think about it. So certainly, you know, I, I don't think Elon Musk reads Gone Girl. Like I said, he's he grew up reading science fiction and people who create technology tend to grow up reading science fiction. They're the people who tend to be inspired by it. So sometimes an invention will really be down to a science fiction writer thinking of something and engineers imitating him. And sometimes it goes the other way. Sometimes we writers are imitating the engineers and we're projecting where they're going to get before they get there because we look at the direction they're going in and the speed that they're moving. So I think, I think it works both ways, but I think that it's, it's almost impossible to predict, which is why we have so many different science fictional versions of the future. And it's very, very, very easy to be pessimistic if you lack imagination. Because there's a lot of people invested in the status quo. There's a lot of people who have found their comfortable little niche, and they're making a lot of money off things being the way they are. And... You, you have to kind of make a conscious effort to push back against that from your imagination of the way things could be. All right, I have one more topic. It kind of tied back into property rights, but we talked about it, and it was rent-seeking. You asked me, you said, what does rent-seeking mean? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was an example that I was using of 
again, having this dialogue in fiction, having this dialogue in culture. So I researched your channel a little bit before appearing on it, and it seems that a lot of your listeners are kind of real estate guys. And an example of like, okay, you've got real estate guys doing your real estate thing. And if you don't involve yourselves in culture, if, if any group doesn't involve itself in culture, then things happen to it in that cultural dialogue that will affect you. And I gave this example of the word rent seeking. And I asked you what you thought rent seeking meant. And, you know, what do you think it means? What, what did you say? I think I said when a landlord collects rent, I, seeking uh -huh. rent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But rent seeking in certain other subcultures is a technical term for trying to extract value as a middleman without adding any value. Like, this idea that you're going to buy a building at a certain price and then you're going to turn around and rent it out as is and you know so so you know economists will use this term rent seeking behaviors and what this means is that the real estate community who who are generally like busy like i'm I bought this dilapidated factory and I'm turning it into a shopping mall. <laughs> this took some work. <laughs> you know, they, they don't even know that this term rent seeking is used in certain subcultures to describe being a parasite. So that's a culture war that they have not fought and therefore lost. And then you know, some of these people will be very surprised and make, you know, the Pikachu face <laughs> when when people show up, you know, hammering on their doors, demanding the new tax that they have on landlords and bloodsuckers, <laughs> you know, communist revolutions have always been preceded or, or you know, commensurate with with pogroms of, of real estate owners. And so you, you have to, this is just one example of how a subculture has to sort of participate in art, participate in cultural dialogue, participate in stories in order to defend itself. So, you know, I don't know anything about real estate because, you know, I grew up the child of Minnesota farmers, <laughs> we were, we were not wealthy. And, and so it's like, where do I go to understand that worldview? Well, where I go to understand worldviews that I don't have experience with is, you know, maybe I can talk to people, but there's fiction. And it's like, if your viewpoint doesn't make it into fiction, it doesn't get considered. And then people start calling you rent seeker. Who are the gate guards of what makes its way into fiction? We'll end it on that because it seems like there's a lot of really probably good ideas going into fiction and a lot of really terrible ones. I mean, we started this with 
that parents are waking up realizing, oh, shoot, this is impacting our kids. But how does some of this trash make its its way in? And how does the good stuff come back? It's because you have institutions built up around creating fiction. And, you know, originally these, you know, Walt Disney was was <laughs> not exactly a communist, yeah. <laughs> and, but Disney now. You know, so what you have is you have these sort of gatekeeping institutions that function very well for a while, and they start to gain the trust of society. And then people who have agendas can infiltrate these institutions and take them over, and it takes others decades to notice. You know, Disney is losing money at an appalling rate for their stockholders. And, you know, all they would have to do to save themselves is start making movies that weren't a hate letter to middle America. And they can't stand to do it because they've been entirely infiltrated by people who hate Western civilization. You know, it's not the same people. All the people who made up those wonderful stories that we loved as kids, they've all died or aged out of the business. These businesses have been taken over by people who hate Western civilization. So if you if you took Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, I don't know him from Adam, to be honest with you, I've never done really any research, but I've listened to a few interviews. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that hates Western civilization. Even if he doesn't love well, it, he doesn't he, seem you to know, hate they it. never do. They never do. They're very glib. They never do. But, you know, I was listening to one of his interviews, and as he talks about the various things they're trying to do to turn the stock value around, the, the interviewer asks him, in this sort of very veiled, euphemistic kind of way, he says, well, are you going to back off the woke stuff? And Bob Iger said something that I found very interesting. And he started talking about, well, you know, there are some messages that are just sort of, I forget exactly what he said, so don't, you know, take this as a liter a direct quote. But he says, you know, there are some things, there are some messages that are just a moral imperative. And so these people no matter how glib they are, no matter how sophisticated they are good at sounding, you know, you you scratch the surface a little bit and you see these people who have very this very, very basic assumption that they know better than everybody else and they understand how society should be shaped. And they just need everybody else to listen to them. And that in itself, that very idea is a hatred of Western civilization because Western civilization has always been about, okay, everybody go and do your own thing and 90% of you will fail and then we'll imitate the winners. That's how we progress. You know, Western civilization has always been a trajectory away from elitism towards garage tinkerers. And 
it is precisely that which has made the difference between Western civilization and the rest of the world. And these people, they hate that. It's not about climate change or transsexuals or pride flags or any of those are just details. Those are just fads of thought. What this is really centralized around is an aristocracy which wants to dictate to the masses. Can it be beat? Absolutely. Well, it's rule by deception, you know, and one of the things we have to realize about Western civilization is we have academic institutions that lie to us and plagiarize each other's work. We have a massively corrupt government. We have, you know, a Hollywood being entirely devoted to propaganda. You know, we have all these things, but if you look at all of these institutions that have betrayed their original mission, the one thing that they have in common is that they all work by deception. And I think that that represents great progress because when someone rules by deception, it means that they can't rule by force. If they have to trick you, it means that they can't overpower you. So really all that's required to beat these kinds of deception-based power structures is not to listen and not to believe. Because ultimately, all of these people who think they are elites require our labor and our participation and our buy-in to implement their utopian schemes. And if we just say, nah, I don't buy that, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to eat your processed food. I'm not going to send my children to your government school. I'm going to 3D print guns and I'm going to grow my own vegetables. And, (laughs) you know, there's nothing they can do to force millions of us to comply. You kind of like periodically throughout the conversation and and it seems just in like, conversation today and culture today, maybe I'm just more aware of it because it's talked about more, or maybe it's always been talked about, but we talk about like they, they're making this decision. Well, as a kid, you grow up and you're like, oh, there's the White House and they're the power of the country and they're the power of the world and that's it. And then you just kind of present a situation like you have the White House, you have Hollywood, you have the world. Well, these people all talk to each other. Correct. They're part of the same social group. But is there a string being pulled from somewhere else? Or is it just a bunch of, you know, numbskulls at the top of all these institutions across the world that talk to each other? Or is there something higher than that up? I don't subscribe to the conspiracy theory of history. I subscribe to the fuck up theory of history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. What's that mean? <laughs> what that means in this context is that I don't think that any sort of central, shadowy, you know, George Soros or whatever kind of figure is behind everything we see going wrong with the institutions of society that are betraying their original missions. What I see is this sort of 
incestuous, corrupt relationship between people in power in these institutions where, you know, there's no central plan. They just all sort of have this consensus where they agree on certain things. It's not, you know, we're going to say that the planet is getting warmer and everyone has to turn off their air conditioners and, you know, start riding bicycles and buy electric cars and what have you. No, it's just, well, gosh, this green energy thing is is really kind of hot right now. And, you know, if we kind of get behind this and push, we can get a whole bunch of government grants pushed through and then those can go to this company that my cousin runs. You know, it's it's not a fellowship of ideology. It's a fellowship of interests. The ideology is just the rationalization that's used to sell the corruption. Green energy is profitable if you're on the right side of it. Oh, yeah. 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 It's it's being made profitable. The government is is picking winners because that that serves some of the ends of, you know, some of the people doing this. You know, it's the the energy problem is is real simple. You know, build nuclear reactors. Done. Next question. Okay, but why don't we do that? Because it would be it would take out of the pockets of somebody high up. I mean, it would. Why do obvious things or common sense things not happen anymore like they used to? Well, I think that I think that you have uh, what you really have is is a problem of misaligned incentives. Anytime you have a representative, you know, it's called the principal agent problem. You have a principal and an agent that is supposed to represent the interests of the principal. You know, like you have a congressmen and senators in government, for example, they're supposed to represent people. But anytime you have a case where the interests of the agent don't align with the interests of the principal, over time, the agents tend to act more and more in their own interests. So, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily need to go down this really, really, really deep rabbit hole, parsing all the whys and wherefores of why don't these people want to build nuclear reactors? We just need to know, well, let's ask a bunch of engineers. Yes, that's the best solution for our energy strategy going forward. And then we need to observe that this is being strangled by regulation. And then we know that there must be an incentive to do that. We don't need to, you know, we don't need to examine every scam before we decide that it's a scam. <laughs> you know, it's like things are a scam by default until you prove otherwise. You know, if, if you're if you've got a company and there was this company in Idaho, it was crazy. They were uh, they had this idea that they were there's solar roadways and they were going to make roads out of solar panels. And they accepted a bunch of government grants. And they ended up 
building an area about eight feet by eight feet in the town square as a demo. And when I went there and looked at it, all the, you know, most of the panels weren't actually working. And they were, you know, they were running their little demo off grid power. But, you know, they took a lot of money and they never produced anything. All right, Devin. This has been great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. That was great. You cracked me up. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 